Hey everyone, welcome back. Before we get started with this final part of the story, I just want to tell you that you should totally go check out our Facebook page, Strive to Make an Impact. We just set up our first fundraiser. It's going to be a color run. Um, it's going to be family oriented, so if you can walk, if you can run, if you can ride in a stroller, if you can ride in a wheelchair, you are invited to participate. There's going to be awesome t-shirts, there's going to be music, um, it's just going to be really a good time, and it's going to be May 4th, so if you want to register, if you want to know more about it, or if you just want to donate to this cause, because we finally have a platform to do that, uh, make sure to go like and check out our Facebook page. Again, it's called Strive to Make an Impact, so we'll go ahead and get into things. Hey everybody, I'm Alicia. And I'm Josh, and you are listening to the Strive to Make an Impact podcast. Because I am a childhood sexual abuse survivor, it has become our mission to create an impact to advocate for survivors and prevent sexual abuse through education. You will also hear from guests on this podcast that are striving to make their own impact and being a role changer in their own way. We're so excited to have you join us, so let's get started. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for the last part of the story. Um, if you haven't checked out parts one, two, or three, go back and do that. And here's Alicia with the rest of it. So where we left off in part three was me sharing the story about, or the most part of the story, the block of the story about um, when the physical abuse started. Um, that was a really hard episode to record. I've received a ton of support since that episode aired. Um, so just thank you for that. I I think this next part is just as important though. So basically what had happened, we were coming up on um, the end of March. And like I said in the previous episode, there was this constant talk of what would happen after my 16th birthday, how far he planned for the abuse to go. And... Before we ever got to that date, everything had come to light. Everything had come to the surface. Um, and I just want to take a minute to explain how that happened. Because like I've like I've said before in previous podcasts, and as it's been made very aware, I never told anyone about the abuse. I never reached out to anyone to um, try to get help. Um, so what had happened was uh, since... I had that extra SIM card and he had constant communication with me whenever he wanted. Um, it meant that he pretty much knew where I was at all times. And the school that I was at, I was still in high school, the school that I was at um, had a workout room that students could use after uh, after school. And so he, there, the trails in our town run uh, the complete perimeter of the high school grounds and he lived near-ish by there so um, he had texted me that he wanted me to come outside and it was March so it was still really cold um, I just I do remember it being very cold outside and so I had went out on the trails and I had met him where he told me to meet him and um, during that time nothing had happened physically during this time um but during that time someone who is it was actually um lived in the same neighborhood as me who knew my parents who knew me not well but knew uh, who I was um saw me with this man 
And as soon as she came into view, he had started walking the other way and walked off. And I started walking back towards the school. And this lady, for whatever reason, thought that it didn't seem quite right, didn't know who this man was, knew who I was. Um, we were the only, I mean, it was freezing cold outside, so the trail was not populated at this point in time. So she called one of the administration people at the school and had reported it to him. And my stepdad had served on the school board uh, at this time. So he, that administrator called him and told him what was going on. Now this is all, while this is all going on, I have no idea that it's happening. Um, we were midweek and that weekend I was to go to my dad's house. Um, so my stepdad and my mom had found out about it. I told my dad um, in the span of that weekend, what I know happened now is that um, they had gone through my room. They had found notes that he had written me um, Monday morning. This was the, the week this all came out. The week that they got this call was the week before spring break. So over the weekend prior to my spring break week, they had gone through my room. They had all talked with each other and they contacted the police and Monday morning, um, a police officer and my stepdad went through my locker at school to see if there was anything there. And I just remember waking up and so it's all of that information I found out after the fact. I mean, a while after the fact. Um, but when it, when I found out that they knew something was going on, it was a Monday morning. It was Monday morning when I spring break and we or I woke up and my mom was supposed to be at work at eight. And by this point it was like 15, 10 till. And I was waking up to go on a run. I used to run a lot during that time. I still get in these moments where I will run from time to time. But um, at that age I was uh, working out or running almost every day. And so I was waking up to go on a run and mom hadn't left for work yet. And she told me that I could tell something was off and she told me that the police officer and my stepdad were at the school and going through my locker and that my dad and stepmom would be there shortly and she asked me what had been going on and I immediately shut down and went in my room and got on the computer. I don't even remember what I was doing on the computer but what I do remember is that I turned on music on my boombox had turned it up decently loud. And when my dad got there, he came in to my room. And I don't remember how the conversation started out, but I know at one point he told me to turn the music down. And because it, at this point it's like 8 a.m. and I'm blaring music in my room because I'm just ticked. And I had already felt like my anxiety was already on full alert. I don't, I don't know that I've ever been more scared or anxious in my entire life up until this point. And so my dad comes in and he tells me at some point to turn the music down. Um, he wasn't being stern, he, he, it was just matter of fact, it's eight o'clock in the morning, you can't have your boombox blaring, people are still asleep next door. And so um, I cussed him out, it was the first time, like I, I don't know that I've ever respected a person to this point as much as I respected my dad. And I was in so much 
I guess turmoil would be a good word, but I was just in so much pain and I was and so I, I was so fearful of what was about to happen because I had no idea what to expect. And like I said, I was just a kid that needed to know everything. So he comes in there and I'm just ticked at the world. I want to run and hide. I don't want to deal with any of this. I don't want to know what's about to happen. I don't want to go to the police station. And I know that's what he's in there to tell me. And so I cussed him out. And my dad, being my dad, was calm and loving and... I ended up turning my music down anyway because he's still my dad. And not long after we went to the police the police station. And so this was not long after the flood. So they had the the police station at that point was like this halfway put together building um, with a teeny tiny interrogation room that was not much bigger than the studio room that you built me that we're sitting in now. And um, there's a little table in there there was a microphone somewhere in the room and um, I sat in there and they brought in a lady from CPS and I immediately hated this lady. She was the first person that I didn't know that was going to come and talk to me about this thing that I've never talked about with anyone, which you know me well enough to know that that was not going to go over well. Uh, besides the fact that I'm a ticked off teenager at the age of 15 who's entire foundation underneath my feet had just crumbled and I'm I just feel like I'm falling like I'm if I was ever in flight or fight mode before I was it, that was amplified times 10 now because I had no one to grasp onto I didn't trust anyone I didn't know anyone um, I was fearful of what was about to happen and I felt like everyone was against me even though obviously they weren't so during this interrogation with her and during the, or I won't say interrogation, during this interview with her and during the interview with the both detectives who were on the case, there was never a point in time where I broke down and told them anything. Um, not on that first day, not on that Monday. Um, the detective ended up coming over to my house and I could tell this entire time that this detective, who is still one of my favorite people in the entire world, this guy had no idea how to this guy had not slept in in days um he he was literally working this case around the clock and he was waiting for something to break so that he could go arrest this man because not only because everything all the notes that my parents had all of the the reasons they had to believe that something was terribly wrong um did wouldn't hold up in a court of law um they had to have some concrete evidence to be able to go arrest him on these charges and at the very least, they needed my testimony, and I wasn't giving them anything. So, um, basically, just to to tie this all up, Monday, I went through two or three different interviews, and nothing happened. Um, my parents were in turmoil because I wasn't talking with them. I was angry at them. They had taken my phone. Um, at this point, all I had left was the SIM card that he had gotten me. But like I said, they took my phone, so I couldn't even get in contact with him. And I was just angry at the world. And so I, they they were pretty hovering, which I understand now as a mom. I didn't understand them. It just, it, it further ticked me off. Um, but they had allowed me, at one point, Monday or Tuesday, they had allowed me to go on a quick run around the neighborhood um, I had a time limit and they allowed me to take my brother's phone in case of emergency well I switched out the sim card and I had 
called my abuser because it was the only person that I felt like I could trust in the world at all because he was the only one that knew all of this was going on and here it was and everybody was starting to find out about it and I was completely terrified. And so I called him and I was genuinely upset and he wasn't um, on the other end of the phone. He was very calm, um, he was very quiet and still to this day his very last words to me were um, I had asked him at the end of the call, I said, so what happens now? And his very last words to me were, um, now I just wait to get in trouble. And then we hung up. And I guess that to me, looking back, it didn't, it didn't register then. It, it definitely didn't sit right because he had never been like that before. But, um, to me it, now it just clarifies the fact that he was a professional in what he was doing. He had just never got caught before. Um, cause he was totally calm about it. He wasn't freaking out. He didn't, I mean, he was, he knew what was going to happen and he was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so again, that was Monday or Tuesday. And I had told nothing to the detectives at this point, the detective who was on the case had come to my house. Um, he had sat at the kitchen table and tried so hard. I mean, he was almost, I won't say nasty about it, but he was firm. Like, he was very strict in what he was asking, and he was pushing hard because he knew, he knew what he couldn't prove, and he just needed me to say something in order for him to basically hand out an arrest warrant. And so Wednesday rolls around, and um, my parents grasping at straws, were trying to get me to talk wouldn't I wouldn't even so much as give them the time of day let alone talk to them I was still running every day at this point I remember that morning my stepdad had taken me to the parks and recs department so I could run on their track and he just sat there and waited for me to get done running and after that I was um, going to be picked up by this person that my family trusted which I know a lot of people are like well huh. all right you know is that a good idea um, but this lady was, and still is to this day, one of the greatest mentors in my life. Um, she's one of my greatest friends and someone I look up to so much. But she came to pick me up that day. Mind you, this lady and I at that point hadn't talked in quite a while. And um, she came to pick me up. We went to lunch. And for the first time in what felt like forever, what had actually been about three to five days, someone just talked to me like I was a human being not someone whose entire world had just completely shifted. And um, we literally, in the midst of this crazy storm that I was in, we literally just ate Mexican food and talked about everything except what was going on. And it was just kind of this like break in the storm where I could like breathe for a second without feeling like I was being questioned down. And it's not because she was blind to the fact that something had been going on. She knew full well what had happened. She knew um, everything that my parents knew and her sole intention was to try to help me get to a better place um, and help this kind of all come to a head where I could trust someone to talk to. But she didn't come off as a uh, an interrogator. She just talked to me like I was a human and, um, allowed me to just not focus on it for once. Um, so 
that was just I wish I could I wish I could elaborate more on how amazing that was or how how important that was at, at that specific time and she was totally prepared to take me back home and me not utter a word about it and I felt that because we were almost she had almost had me back home I couldn't drive at this point she had almost had me drop back off at home my mom had gone to work that day because well if you know my mom she just she's not going to sit around and sit at home and let this driver nuts not that she didn't care she just had to be doing something because she would have gone insane uh, or should I say even more insane sitting here not being able to do anything because everyone knew everyone knew what had happened and yet they couldn't prove it and I wasn't talking about it so we were at this place where to them it looked like he was going to get away with all of this and their daughter was not speaking to them let alone healing or getting any kind of help or comfort from what had happened so um she about has me back home. We're literally a quarter of a mile from my house. And my mom calls me from work. And she was upset. Not at me. She was just upset in general. Because um, I don't even know how this came about. But I do remember her saying that the church congregation. Remember going all the way back to part one and two. This church was like a family to us. So not only is, is she finding out that this man that she trusted implicitly has abused her daughter she's also finding out in this moment in real time as i'm being driven back to my house that this um this church congregation that we have come to know and love and trust and be a part of a family with has now all decided not all but mostly decided to um side with him and they're saying literally they're saying that i had been chasing him there were rumors going around that people saw me trying to come on to him and that must be what I was saying um, that he was abusing me when in all reality I was the one that was um, causing the problems and so they were choosing to support him because I was a troubled teen I guess so at this point mom's livid Mom's already livid. Mom's already out of control with anger and um, all of these other emotions that we won't get into because her story is not my story. But she calls me. We're a quarter of a mile away from the house. She calls me and she tells me these things. And for the first time, one of those walls that I had put up cracked right down the middle. And I was ticked. I was annoyed. And I, I mean, I was just mad that this man, um, my abuser... In that time frame where my emotions were towards him, where my thought processes were towards him, that he would allow these people, his congregation, to say these things about me. After I've spent the last four to eight hours going against everyone that I know and everyone who loves me to protect him. Because he told me what would happen if this ever got out. He told me that he would be in trouble. He told me that he would go to jail. He told me that he would commit suicide if, if that had happened. And so that's what's going on in my head. That's part of the reason that I'm not saying anything. A, a large part of the reason that I'm not saying anything. And he's allowing all of these people that I know and love and trust to say these horrible things about me and my family. And that's what broke the dam. So I tell this, this lady that's driving. I tell her 
to take a detour. Actually, I think she suggested doing the take a detour, and I said yes. And then, at this point, I'm just ticked. And she's seen me. She's probably seen me in this Alicia mode more than she's not seen me in this Alicia mode in the last 10 years. And she said nothing, never pushed. And um, in this weird sort of way, she's acting as if it never, like, that this call didn't just happen and that nothing in my life is actually going on. And I just, like, word vomited all of this stuff to her. Not about the abuse necessarily, but how could he? And I've been keeping this secret and I can't believe he would allow this. And after all that's happened and she's just letting me word vomit all of this. And, and, and some of it might be making sense, but I'm imagining looking back now that most of it probably didn't. And she's just letting me have my moment. And so I tell her, I said, I've got to show you something. Take me back home. And so we get back home and I show her the SIM card that he had given me. And I go to find the notes that were in my room and obviously not in plain sight. And I find that they're gone. And this is the moment, five days later, this is the moment it hits me that my parents have found these notes first. So we, I, I, I show her all of this and her only words are, what do you want to do about it? And I told her that I wanted to go back and talk to the detective on the case. And so she sticks around. She drives me over there. Um, she drives me over there. All of my parents meet there. And um, my parents, like they had done the two days prior, sit in a different room. Um, this lady goes into the room with them and hangs out and stays there. And I go into a room alone with the detective by my own choice. And I just start telling him everything. Um, I start telling him of every event that had happened. He asked me um, to, I had to, I had to tell them, the way it started out was, um, I told them a very broad overview of all of the things that had happened and how it had happened. And then um, the detective said, and it was just me and him in the room at this time, he said, I need you to tell me dates and as close to the approximate times that you can that each of these you know aforementioned events happened and so we're sitting at a table together and I asked for calendars and this is when I found out a microphone's in the room because he literally said can we get calendars for December January February and March in here please and all of a sudden someone knocks at the door two minutes later with calendars and so I start marking out dad weekend mom weekend dad weekend mom weekend because in my head that's how I related back to these are when these events took place because I knew what weekend it was or I knew what week it was. And so, like I said, most of most of the events, quote unquote events, happened on Wednesday nights. There were some points in time where um, my parents would think I was at um, a track practice because I was a like one of the managers for the track team. And I, they would think that I was there and in reality he had picked me up. And then he would, I would say I was getting a ride home from a friend. Again, keep in mind I'm 15. This is not abnormal stuff. And I would get a ride home from a friend, which was actually him. And so this whole time that I was supposed to be at track practice, I was actually, um, he had actually picked me up. And more stuff had happened. And so I'm, I'm writing these dates down and I'm literally filling in these blank calendars of these events. And then he tells me, he said, I know this is going to be hard and I know you don't want to do this. And 
Um, I just need you to go back through and tell me with as much description as you possibly can what exactly all happened on this day and this day and this day and this day. And he's pointing to calendars on the events. Or he's pointing to dates on the calendar. And I kind of just froze. Because I wasn't, like, I didn't know this man. I had never talked about any anything like this with anyone else before, ever. And now I'm supposed to tell a complete stranger, knowing that everything I'm saying is also completely going to be against this man. The only man that I felt, not the only man, the only human in the world that I felt cared. Or that I could trust in the world. And so... I asked if I could bring someone in um, to the room. If we could take a break and I could bring someone in. He said, yes. Um, who do you want to bring in? And I told him this lady's name. And he said, for the record. He said to the microphone, for the record, so-and-so um, is coming into the room. So we walk out. And I'll never forget this. He um, side-hugged me as we're walking down. Walking out through this garage and through the hallway through this makeshift police department. And he side-hooked me. And he literally choked back tears as he's thanking me for talking with him. Because I'm pretty sure that this man had not slept in 72 hours. Because he's been trying to crack this case and he can't. Um, and they had taken everything. They had taken everything. They had gone through all the phone records. They had gone through all the notes. They had gone through everything. And they did not have enough without my testimony to go and arrest him. So for 72 hours, my abuser knew what was going on. And the detective knew what was going on. My parents knew what was going on. And for 72 hours, they all had different journeys of waiting and wondering. And so this detective, he side hugs me and we walk down the hallway and we get this lady that I had been with for lunch that had been the first one to see the crack in the wall. And she comes into the room with me and she sits kind of like off to the side and behind me a little bit. And for the majority of the time, she just had her hand either on the back of my shoulder or on the back of my chair. And at this point, I literally had to go into every single event that had happened and tell this story of abuse for the first time. Um, in a in an interrogation room with a detective that I had barely knew. And to date, that is easily one of the top five hardest things that I've ever had to do. Uh, it's just, I think, I think it's important because this lady that was in the room with me, I never cried that entire time. It was excruciatingly painful to do it. Um, and it was kind of more of like this... Like, once I gained traction and letting a little bit go, like, all of the facts, all of the things just started pouring out. And it's not that it was necessarily healing for me. It was just, like, I couldn't physically, emotionally, or mentally take handling it on my own anymore. And once one single crack in the wall formed, all of it started seeping out. And this lady that's in the room with me, I'm nervous. I'm shaking uncontrollably. I can barely keep my own composure, but I'm never cry like crying. I'm not emotional during this point. I'm scared to death. I've never been so terrified in my life. And I, while I'm, like, in real time, I'm telling him all of these events. And at the same time, in the back of my brain, I have no idea what's going to happen the minute I walk out of that room. So in a weird sense, I wanted to stay there because at least I knew what was happening in there. Because I had no, like, as soon, as soon as I left, I knew all four of my parents were going to know about this. I knew that 
since all four of my parents knew about this, all of my extended family was going to know about this. And I didn't want anyone to know. I was deeply embarrassed, deeply ashamed. I was scared speechless. I was 15 and I was completely unraveled and I had no idea what to expect. And my anxiety was at an all-time high. In fact, I don't know that I've ever had anxiety that bad before, even with all of the court cases later on. And so this lady who has known me since the time I was in first grade and is sitting with me now at 15 and who woke up that same morning knowing that she would meet me and knowing a sense of what was going on but had no idea it would turn into this who's kept her composure and been completely calm and eerily normal starts crying as I'm telling of the these events because she's known me since the time I was in first grade and now she's sitting behind me as I'm telling the worst parts of my life to this stranger and she's the one that I chose to have in the room so that was it was just such a such a heavy day and it's something that's so surreal looking back now because I remember it but it's almost like watching a movie of myself um so after that day they arrest him and he makes bail almost immediately and then all these weird facts start coming out like um, the church found out that there had been ton- like thousands of dollars missing because he also did their he also like ran their books or something. I'm not sure about all this, but all these facts start coming out. And still, like I, I say that because a year later, one full year later, as he's being as he's signing guilty to a plea agreement so that it doesn't go to trial. Um, because by this point, after everything came out, they had even more evidence, concrete evidence, to be able to take him to trial and. He would be going away for quite a substantial time, most likely, and his attorney um, encouraged him to take the plea deal because it was a very fair plea deal. And the reason that it was such a very fair plea deal is because they wanted him to take it because the alternative was I would have to be a witness on the stand. And neither the prosecutor or any of my poor parents thought that I could, um, thought that I could handle doing that on top of all the trauma that had happened. And in that time, they were right. Um... And maybe that's something we'll talk about later is my thoughts on that. But long story short, he was arrested, made bail, um, and then it was arraignment and pretrial and pretrial and pretrial for one, almost a year to the day. Um, And then they did a two-part plea hearing where he would plead guilty and the judge would basically read off all the things. And... Um, then a month later we went back and he was sentenced and they worked it that way Um, from what I understand they worked it that way so that he would have time to get his affairs in order even though he knew for the past year he was going away to jail Um, that he would get his affairs in order and be able to say goodbye to his family etc etc so between the time he pled guilty and said yes I did these things and the judge said okay you're going to jail he had a month later we had to go back and he was sentenced And up until that time, I had been to probably 80% of all of the court hearings, and they were all pretrial. So literally, they went up in front of a judge, and they gave some bogus reason as to why they weren't ready to have the trial yet, or sign a plea agreement yet, or whatever um, was going on for nearly a year. And then the plea agreement was signed, and he pled guilty. And during this time, I remember I was standing in the back of the courtroom, and I was halfway leaning against the door frame because there was like a room in the back of the court that was closed off and we were allowed to sit in that room and then when that part of the so 
you have to understand that because it wasn't a trial, it's not like we were in a room alone and it was just the people that were associated with this case. It was everyone that was on the docket that day. So there's not only him and his family and some of the times church members supporting him, it was also me and my family and some of my friends and then a whole bunch of strangers who I didn't know at all who also had hearings that day for the judge to hear. And so on this day of plea, this is the second to last hearing where he signs the plea agreement and says, yes, I'm guilty. Uh, the judge really laid into him. And this judge, I'm sure, would have loved to throw the book at him. Um, accepted the plea agreement because the whole reason was for me not to testify. But laid into him on this day, outlining details, like explicit details of this case to this man and saying, you did this to a 15-year-old and you did this to a 15-year-old and you used your position as a head pastor of a church to do this to a 15-year-old and laid into him. And during all this time, as I'm realizing where I'm at and who I'm around and that my parents are five feet from me and this judge is laying into the man that abused me for four months a year prior, um, I literally passed out against a friend of mine who was behind me as I'm up against the door frame, she's behind the door frame, and I passed out against her. And thank the Lord Jesus, it was not, it was subtle enough that um, no one noticed except for those that were like right next to me, my family and friends. And it was quick enough that it was almost more of like, a, I guess, a blackout. But she basically held me up until I came to again. But that's how, like, I hadn't healed at this point. Um, I had been in that process, but at this point I was not anywhere near healed um, or recovered from this trauma. And I wasn't expecting the judge to be that open in a court of law to him. Um, looking back now, I'm glad he did, but I wasn't expecting it. And so knowing that all those details were out in front of a courtroom, uh, I guess took me by surprise enough that I momentarily checked out of the entire situation completely. Um, so then a month later, he we go back and this time instead of standing in the back of a courtroom, which this is all this is all choice. I didn't have to show up for any of these, but I chose to. And this time we went up in front of the judge so there's like that half a wall and behind that half a wall is where all the public sits and then in front of that half a wall in a courtroom that you would see on TV if you've never been in one. There's a table for the prosecutor and a table for the defendant. But they face each other in this court of law. And so um, we were standing by one and him and his entire family were standing by another. And we were told repeatedly during this time that you can't make any kind of facial expressions. You have to be expressionless. You can't say it. You absolutely can't say anything. You can't do anything because the judge will call you out. And it's not necessarily because he doesn't agree with, like, that's just the rules of the court that it's not the place or time to say those things. Um, you, we had the opportunity at that point, even though the police plea agreement had been signed, et cetera, et cetera, it was kind of this last chance to say whatever you wanted to say. And I had written up a victim's impact statement, but I didn't read it that day. I decided against it last minute. My parents read one. Um, I think someone on his side had read something to the judge. 
and then he spoke. And every single trial before this day, even the plea one, even the, even the, even the one that I blacked out in, um, he would not look in my general direction, let alone look at me directly. And this entire day leading up, we were the last hearing on the docket. Um, so, like, we were, there were so many to be heard that day that we actually, like, went across the street and me and my friends to kind of get out of that, um, to get out of that room for a minute because we were the last ones to be heard on the docket. We went across and got a drink and we went back over but that entire time that I was there, he was staring directly at me the whole time. And I'll never forget that. I even made multiple comments to my friend, the one that caught me the last time, that I was, that it was terrifying the way he was looking at me because it was just direct and it was pointed. And it was to the point, like it was so awkward by that point that my family members were actually putting themselves between me and him so that he didn't have that option anymore. And so we go up when it, when our, uh, whatever is called we go up and it's the most awkward thing in the world because there's these tables but we were both standing in front of the tables facing each other so i'm facing his family and his entire family is facing me and my family and friends and during this time the judge is saying things and then people are going up and reading their victims impact statement and then he went up last and even though despite the fact that me and my family were told repeatedly how not to act and how we were supposed to act and to remain completely expressionless, his family members were mouthing things to me and glaring holes into my forehead and intimidating me and never nothing ever came of it. Um, but during this time, my parents read a victim's impact statement. Um, my dad was the one basically holding me up at that point. And then him and his wife held hands and came up in front of the microphone and he apologized for his actions, um, told everyone how sorry he was and that he never meant to hurt anyone. And then the judge gave the final sentence and they cuffed him and took him to jail after he hugged and kissed all of his family members. Um, bye. And in the, so behind the half wall where everybody else sits, where the public sits, there was probably no less than 20 members of the congregation, one of which was a fellow youth member that I had known for years that was in my youth group and she was not much older than me and she was sitting on his lap prior to him going up and being sentenced to jail for being a child molester. Like, that's how insane this is to me. So anyways, he gets sentenced, they cuff him, and they leave. And we leave the courtroom and... It's like these two long hallways on either side and we leave and his daughter had said something. I don't even remember what she said, but she had said something to me, threatened me in some way, which is not abnormal in this story. As time went on, I received multiple threats from both his wife and some of his daughters threatening me. And um, so there's this whole big drama in the hallway and then we left. After he had went away, I was to the point that I was really able to, I, it was kind of just like this major weight lifted off my shoulders. Um, that part was over. As I was trying to heal in the year after, as I was, you know, meeting with therapists and trying to reconnect with friends and basically rebuild my life and try to figure out who I even was, there was this constant 
looming cloud of court's not over and in, and in eight weeks we have to go back to court or in three months we have to go back to court and he's still right down the road and he's going to this other church which by the way wrote a letter on his behalf to the judge as to how he's a changed man which is convenient that that can happen so quickly and um so there was always this like I could only get so far before I got knocked back because he was still like we were still going through this massive thing even though the physical abuse had stopped there was still all this mental and emotional stuff going on because we were in court all of the time and so that was pretty much most of my junior year of high school was going back to court and um I mean, I'm not, that's not me trying to like gain pity or play the victim card. It's just reality of what it was. I, I had, um, friends. I had been on dates with guys. By the end of court, I had had a boyfriend and, um, I was trying to get back into like a normal teen high school life, but there was always like this thing that was right around the corner that we had to go do. There was never any finality about it. And so after he went away, I feel like I was able to start really making some progress on that healing part. I, I, I got a job. I was hanging out with friends. I was reconnecting with old friends. Um, I was living a quote-unquote normal life. And at the same time, I was focusing a lot on healing and how I could be okay with myself again. Um, and then two years later, we find out, we get a notice, an email notice that he's being released early because not only the good time credit, but like we've said before in this podcast, he earned even more time off his sentence because he got um, an associate's and bachelor's degree in human services. So that took his time. It, it credited back his time. So on a 10-year sentence, he served two years. And I still don't think that I was anywhere near fully healed, but it set me back so far because I knew that he was, like, it was over, couldn't do anything further. And this man, who at this point I didn't trust at all, I was completely fearful of, and I knew I had, I had healed enough to know that everything that had happened was wrong. While I still felt fault and I still felt ashamed and I still felt embarrassed by all these things, I knew enough to know that he was a danger to me. And I was terrified for a long time that I was going to run into him at the local store, that he was going to try to contact me. Um, we changed my number multiple times, my phone number. Um, and it set me back so far in my healing because it was almost like, well, I mean, we went to court for a year and he went away for two. And so for a long time, I was just ticked off as to like, why did we even go through any of this? Why did we go through any of it if, if the system is going to fail constantly? And I was really angry for a really long time. And I think it's a total God thing that even though he lives less than five minutes from, you know, up the road, I've yet to um, come face to face with him since that last day in court. The hard part, though, was because it knocked me back so far and I felt so defeated by what had happened I shut down completely again, um, but I was better at it this time. I didn't want, at this point, I wasn't just scared and afraid and alone. I was just ticked and I shut everything off and I went backwards in my healing journey to a whole other place that I hadn't been before. And I stopped caring. I stopped having meaningful relationships. I 
got into things that I probably shouldn't have been into. I picked up a lot of really bad habits. Um, I would go days without eating or without sleeping. I would have night terrors. And I was keeping all of this hidden again from the people that loved me because, A, it had been three years since the abuse. And by that point, I just decided, um, not that this is true at all, but I just decided that I should be healed by then. Like, people were done dealing with this problem in my life. And so I was done dealing with this problem in my life. And I had just come up with that in my own head. That people were tired about hearing with this, or hearing about this, so I'm, I'm done with it. I'm not dealing with it anymore. I've done enough. I'm done dealing with it. And I completely spiraled downward for a really long time. Um, it's not something that I want to get into on this podcast today. It may be something that we get into later. Um, I know there's a lot in in my recovery process. Not just how I got back to where I am now, but after that day, how low I had gotten to a whole other different place. And that was all self-inflicted um, stuff that I didn't want to deal with. And I purposefully made my life worse for a very long time because I felt really crappy. Um, that's a horrible way to explain it because it makes it sound really watered down. But I was just ticked at the world and I was done being a good person. And a lot of that story is still untold to many, many people that love and care about me, not only then, but still now today. Um, so that's not something I'm going to get into. Oh, I do want to note though, that by the grace of God, I'm still here. I'm talking into a microphone and I'm doing absolutely everything I can think of and everything he gives me to make a positive impact on this world. But it took me a lot of years to get to this place. And if there's one thing I could tell my former self then, it's to realize that trauma like this, abuse like this does not take X amount of days or months or years to get over. Every single person's process is different. And while I regret certain decisions I made in that process, I'm here today because of everything I went through. Not just the mental abuse, not just the emotional abuse, not just the physical abuse or the road to recovery leading back from all of that. It's all of it put together and all of God's plan for my life got me here. And I constantly live every single day thankful for the life I have because it's beautiful. I have a husband and I have kids and I have a good job and now I have a nonprofit and I'm helping change lives of others and I get to hear a few times a week, definitely at least once a week, someone reaches out and says, because of what you're doing, you're helping me. Or they say, I wanted to share my story with you because I want to connect with you on this level because you're the kind of person that I need right now. And that means the world to me because my whole goal in this, and I've said this before and I'll say it a billion times again, is to become the person that I needed when I was 15. Whether I knew that at 15 or not, that's the kind of person I want to be today so that I can be that person for other people who aren't yet where they need to be. So we'll talk about my recovery at a later date, most likely. Um, I've already had people asking questions about it and that's fine. I will say that I don't mind questions. I'm very comfortable with saying it's not a question that I want to answer, at least not right now. Um, but it just means the world to me that we have this much support. And I, if you're listening and you're in that bad place, I want you to know that it gets better. I'm living proof that if you just keep hanging in there, if you just, if you stop trying to fix all of it at once and just take every single breath at a time and focus on just 
breathing and staying alive and not causing more damage. You don't have to be helpful if you just stop being hurtful to yourself or others or your life and just try little bitty pieces at a time. If that means that you did nothing positive but you did nothing negative that day, that's enough. You're just breathing and eventually you'll live, you'll get to a point where you're not surviving, you're actively living your life. It gets better. That's not a cliche. It actually gets better. Living proof of that. Okay. And if they need to contact you just to talk about anything? Yep. My email, as always, is alicia.lewis.j at gmail.com. That's A-L-I-S-H-A dot L-E-W-I-S dot J at gmail.com. I know that we've gone over our normal time that we like to do this, but like I said, I really appreciate all the support, all the prayers, all of your guys's, um, your own impacts. I love hearing your stories, and um, I really appreciate you sticking with me on this story. It's definitely not been easy to release um, this month. Has I, I've definitely been triggered in a lot of different ways, but it's something that thankfully I'm able to work through now. So. I'm Thanks sure, for joining. Sure, they appreciate you talking with them about your experience and being there for them. And you know, I I was very quiet this episode, like most of the other ones during your story, because it's not my story to tell. But from my side of things, thank you. Thanks, baby. All right. Well, we'll see you all next week. Thanks for joining.